uh, and uh, as I suddenly come over on the microphone, um, please let me say Happy New Year as well, since I missed last Sunday. It's very good to see everyone. Let me kick off by asking you this. What picture do you have in mind of Jesus? How do you mainly think of him? Jesus the... Complete the sentence. Uh, Predictably, if you put Jesus into Google images, the main result is a white man with blonde hair, plus or minus beard, plus or minus dinner plate behind his uh, head. Uh, And that is certainly how he did not look. So setting that one aside, what picture do you have of Jesus in your mind? Maybe after Christmas you've got the baby in the manger. Or maybe from a Catholic background, you've got a crucifix. Or maybe from last Sunday's psalm, you've got the Lord my shepherd, or my friend, or my saviour. And apart from the white, blonde-haired Jesus plus or minus dinner plate, all those images of him are there in the Bible. And we need all of the Bible's images to be able to know Jesus fully, as he really is. And this is the point of the series we're beginning, we especially need the Old Testament ones. And that may sound strange at first, because the the Old Testament, if you look at the picture there, the Old Testament was written before Jesus. And so to get your picture of Jesus, surely you'd go to the New Testament, wouldn't you? Written after Jesus and about Jesus. But the Bible's answer is no, you go to both. So in the next picture, you can see the the Old Testament was written about Jesus as well. It's full of promises about Jesus. It's full of foreshadowings of Jesus. And the New Testament simply gives us the fulfillment of those. Now, I realize that may be old hat to many of us. You may be used to the idea that the Old Testament prophets pointed forward to Jesus. For example, Micah 5.2, predicting his birth in Bethlehem, but you may not be so used to the idea that the Psalms pointed forward to Jesus. And that's why we're starting a series called Christ in the Psalms. We're going to look at the the top four Psalms that the New Testament quotes to help us get our picture of Jesus right. So before we go on, let's pray. Father, Christmas has reminded us how you revealed yourself supremely in Jesus. But we realize you began to reveal what he would be and do long, long before he came. And so as we look at Christ in the Psalms, please open our eyes to see him more clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. So could you um, turn in the Bibles in the seats to page 448 and Psalm 2? It'll really help you to have that open as well as seeing other verses and pictures up on screen. Really want to encourage you to have the Bible open at page 448. And we're going to ask the question, where is Jesus in Psalm 2? Where is Jesus in Psalm 2? So have a look down to verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord 
and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So here on screen is the picture of that psalm. You've got the nations and you've got their kings, the crowns. But then in the middle of them, you've got the Lord's people ruled over by the Lord's anointed, as this psalm calls him. In other words, a king appointed by God and uh, marked out or recognized by an anointing ceremony. And just in passing, the word Christ literally means anointed. So whenever you meet the word Christ in the Bible, just think God's appointed king. Christ is God's appointed king. But, next picture, the nations don't like the idea of God trying to reassert his rule over the whole world. And so they are against the Lord and against his anointed. They get the thumbs down. Okay, keep Psalm 2 open in your Bible. And now look at Acts chapter 4 on the screens. So now we've jumped into the New Testament. Jesus has died, risen from the dead, and returned to heaven. The apostles have started preaching that. The leaders, the rulers of the day don't like that. And so they arrest them. Acts 4, verse 32. When the apostles were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and here comes Psalm 2, verses 1 and 2, quote, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's where the quote ends, and then it goes on. For truly, in this city that is in Jerusalem, that first Easter, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, which extraordinarily was the crucifixion. So again, look on screen. Do you see what those first believers were doing? They were saying the Lord's anointed in Psalm 2 was Jesus, and that the kings and rulers who were against him were Herod and Pontius Pilate, and that the people who were against him were the Gentiles and the Jews of their day, And that the way they tried to burst the bonds of serving God was by crucifying Jesus. So Acts chapter 4 is saying the first bit of Psalm 2 is about Jesus' death on the cross. And you and I would probably not have guessed that. Okay, now look at Acts 13 on screen. This is now the Apostle Paul speaking about Jesus, whom he says was crucified and put in a tomb, picking it up from verse 30, but... God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, that is the Old Testament people behind us, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, 
by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. And here comes Psalm 2 again, this time verse 7. Quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Acts 13 is saying the next bit of Psalm 2 is about Jesus' resurrection. And you and I probably wouldn't have guessed that either. And you step back from that and you think, all of that, doesn't it sound slightly like pulling the gospel rabbit out of the Psalm 2 hat? Here's the question. How did the New Testament writers know that Psalm 2 was about Jesus? Because some Bible scholars would say it wasn't, and they were twisting Psalm 2 just for their own purposes. Well, look on screen again. Here's the picture of God's Old Testament people, this time with a D um, in the crown of the Lord's anointed to show that we're in the time of King David. Next to it is the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, which is one of the two most important promises in the Bible. So God said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. That's talking about Solomon building the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this promise begins to sound quite big, forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, in other words, ruling family, as in house of Windsor, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So that's a promise to David and his family line that theirs will be a forever kingdom. It's a promise that they're going to share God's rule. They're going to rule under God and for God. And that's why God says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's an an idea taken from the, the fact that in those days, almost without exception, a son did what his father did. So... Um, if his father was a farmer, he became a, father, a farmer. If his father was a baker, he became a baker. If his father was a king, he became royalty, and so on. Like father, like son, in, in what he did. So God is saying to David and his successors, um, with your family line, it's going to be like father, like son, between you and me. You are going to share my occupation, which is to rule. You're going to rule under me and for me. Now that Psalm, that 2 Samuel 7 promise of a forever kingdom, I guess you could say theoretically it could be fulfilled in one of two ways. Way number one is a forever line of kings, each one replacing the last one who's died. Way number two is that one day you have a forever king. In other words, one who lives forever. So with all that in mind, let's now look back to Psalm 2. Acts chapter 4 gave us uh, an added clue. It told us it was written by David. 
So originally, Psalm 2 is King David under pressure from the surrounding nations, but reassuring himself by looking back to God's Psalm 2, Psalm 2 Samuel 7 promise. So David says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? In other words, I shouldn't feel threatened by them, even though they're attacking my borders. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, which was David at that point, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So David says to himself, all of that is true, but I'm now going to lift my eyes from the human opposition to God. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Not that rebellion against God is a laughing matter. It's just a way of saying God is completely unthreatened by it as he looks down from heaven. Verse 5, then he will speak to the opposition in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In other words, God says, I've made David my king. I've kept my 2 Samuel 7 promise, and there is nothing you can do about it. No opposition will change that. And then David speaks, kind of preaching the 2 Samuel 7 promise to himself. Verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today, which would have been his coronation day, today, I have begotten you. And remember, that's like father-like son language. It means that from the day he was enthroned, David shared his heavenly father's occupation, namely ruling. Now, we still haven't quite answered the question, how is Psalm 2 about Jesus? But we're well on the way. Because look at the picture next. What happened after David was this. God kept his promise that there would be a David line of kings. But instead of leading God's people to trust and obey God, they ultimately misled them to distrust and disobey God. And so ultimately God brought the judgment of the exile on them. And that seemed to bring the David line of kings to an end. So it looked like God's 2 Samuel 7 promise had failed when in fact... It had simply gone underground, a bit like the metro does here at Jesmond Metro, so that you can't see it from above ground for a while, but it's still there. The train is still running. And beyond the exile, the 2 Samuel 7 promise was still running, even when Israel had no visible human king. And the 2 Samuel Samuel 7 promise was heading for that second way of bringing about a forever kingdom, which is by having a forever king who lives forever, having died on a cross and risen from the dead and returned to heaven to share his father's rule and his name is Jesus. So you can read Psalm 2 as originally about David, the first in that line of kings. But you've got to remember the whole point of David and his kingdom was to foreshadow Jesus and his kingdom because As the picture shows, the Old Testament didn't just point forward to Jesus with predictions, like Micah 5, 2, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. It foreshadowed Jesus in events, like the Passover, in places, like the temple, 
and in people like David and the David line of kings. So you can also, and you should also, ultimately read Psalm 2 as about Jesus, the one to whom that line of kings was heading, the one that that line of kings and all their experience was foreshadowing. So let's do that to end with. We're going to run through it now and see Jesus in it from start to finish. So verse 1 again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, equals Christ, equals Jesus, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So we now know that didn't just describe the opposition David faced in his day, it foreshadowed the opposition Jesus faced when they tried to cast him away through the cross. The world then had to learn that you can reject God's Christ, but you can never get rid of him. So verse 4. He who sits in the heavens, God the Father, laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, not that he laughed at what they did to his son, but at the futility of thinking it would mean they now would see the back of his son for good. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's what God the Father did. As he raised Jesus from the dead, it's as if he was saying, you may not want him or like him as king, but I have set him on the throne beside me. I have ultimately fulfilled the 2 Samuel 7 promise. And there's nothing you can do to change that. No opposition will overthrow that. That is reality, like it or not. So you can mock Christians and persecute them and say you're an atheist and all the rest. It doesn't change the fact that Jesus lived, died, rose again, and is your and my and everyone's rightful king. And then in verse 7, the risen Jesus speaks. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Remember, that is like father, like son language. It's language about what Jesus does, not language about who Jesus is. It's language about what Jesus has been doing since the day of his resurrection, which is sharing his father's occupation, ruling the universe. It's not language about who Jesus is. It's doing language, not being language. It's not saying he's only been the divine son of God since his resurrection. Just like we said in the creed, he's been that eternally, eternally begotten of the Father, forever the Father's son. So Psalm 2 extraordinarily foreshadows Jesus' death, resurrection, enthronement, in heaven and next it foreshadows the spread of his kingdom and finally his coming again look on to verse 8 ask of me says God the father to the son and I will make the nations your heritage the ends of the earth your possession and that happens and it is happening through the worldwide spread of the gospel as people hear it as people realize that Jesus is their rightful king as they, as they ask him to forgive them back into relationship with him, they become his possession again, like, like they should have been all along. 
The alternative to that is to remain on collision course with Jesus, in which case, verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And that is picture language for Jesus coming again on the far horizon of time to wrap up history and bring all rebellion against God to account. And that just leaves the application of all this, the so what, which is in verses 10 to 12. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. So uh, your majesty and uh, prime minister, if you're watching online, this is especially for you. Because those of us in power, those of us with any sort of position, great or small, headmaster, whatever, we easily think we're above accountability, don't we? When no one is above accountability to King Jesus. And actually the sin problem we all have is living like we were each our own little king, ruling our own lives as if God wasn't there, God didn't matter. So verses 10 to 12 are actually to all of us, aren't they? Not, not just to Charles and Rishi. So what do we each need to do to be on the right side of Jesus? Well, verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, that is, kiss his feet. It was a sign back then in David's day of submitting to a king's rule. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. In other words, we each need to come to Jesus and say, I will serve you as my king from now on, as I should have been doing all along. And if you ask, but if I do that, what will he do about all the years and all the ways that I have failed to let him be king? The answer is in the very last line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In other words, he will meet us. He will always meet us with the blessing of his forgiveness of everything in our lives that needs forgiving. Because he paid for that on the cross. The cross is our refuge, isn't it? As we're going to remember in communion. Well, I began by asking, what picture do you have in mind of Jesus? How do you mainly think about him? And I hope this morning has shown us that along with all the Bible's other images of him, we need to see him as the king of Psalm 2, the rightful king of everyone, the king that we will each ultimately give account to, and the king who died and rose again so we could be forgiven and on the right side of him. And if you haven't seen Jesus quite like this before, quite on this scale before, it just shows how much we need to see Christ in the Psalms. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in this world that is still against the Lord and against his anointed, thank you for the reassurance that you rose from the dead to share your Father's throne and that nothing can threaten you or stop the spread of your kingdom. Please give us confidence that you are the king of Psalm 2, that this is real. And please give us boldness to tell others about it. For your Father's glory. Amen. Psalm 2 has been telling us that Jesus is king. Uh, that's much the same as saying Jesus is Lord. And that's what we're going to sing to one another right now. Let's stand.